there is a controversial issue at the center of Genesis chapter 6. There's controversial issues coming up about the nature of the flood. And I can let you know in advance that when we get to those places, I'm going to take the position that uh, the flood of Noah was, in fact, a worldwide flood. I'm also a young earth guy. That said, I'm going to take uh, what many might consider uh, something of a liberal, I don't think it's liberal at all, but something of a liberal position on this controversy in chapter 6. Chapter 6, as we mentioned, heading out of chapter 5, is sort of the uh, the new thesis, if I can be Hegelian for a moment, that in chapter 4 of Genesis we read about uh, the wicked line of Cain. In chapter 5 we read about the godly line of Seth. In chapter 6 we read about what happens when those two lines come together. And that, friends, is where the controversy is. The language uh, of the text uh, has led some to believe that the, the, the sort of the great cause of the wickedness upon the earth that uh, led to God determining to send the flood was an intermarrying of uh, demonic beings and human beings. Here in verse 1, we read this text. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, I understand why people want to take this uh, as a description of uh, demonic beings intermarrying with human beings. Uh, the language of the sons of God is language that uh, from time to time uh, is used in the Old Testament to describe not just demons, but uh, the whole of the angelic realm, those who remained loyal and those who fell both. They are called the sons of God. Uh, and for good reason. I mean, they, these are the creatures that God made immediately. They are the sons of of God. We know this in the context of the book of Job, where uh, we're told at the beginning that the sons of God came and appeared before God. And that's when God said, as Satan came in with them, God said, have you considered my servant Job? So there's that instance in which that language is used to describe um, angels and demons. So why do I not accept that position? Well, it's not because I'm embarrassed at uh, such fanciful uh, conjecture, although it may sound like I'm being a little uh, pedantic or uh, even scientific. But at the end of the day, my objection is this. 
while I certainly believe that at least angels, and almost certainly demons as well, have the capacity to uh, give the appearance of being humans, uh, as the angels who appeared before uh, Abraham did, uh, I don't believe that they have bodies. In fact, I love, uh, one of the things I love about the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis is that the demon uh, curses humanity by calling us amphibians, recognizing that animals are bodies without souls, that uh, angels and demons are souls without bodies, but we have both. And so he hates that about us. Well, demons don't have bodies, and even if they did have bodies, we have no reason to believe they have the power to procreate. So at the end of the day, I think that that's an interesting theory. Uh, it has, again, going for it, uh, that it would, it would seemingly help to describe uh, the presence of these Nephilim, uh, these giants that were on the earth, these mighty men of renown. But I think that's a pretty significant problem, that demons don't have bodies. And I think there is a uh, slightly less uh, entertaining explanation of this text, but a slightly more uh, rational explanation of this text. And it goes back to what I, the, the groundwork that I've been laying with respect to Genesis 4 and Genesis 5. What if the description of the sons of God is describing the godly line of Seth? And what if the daughters of men is a description of the wicked line of Cain? And what if, having given this description of the separation of these lines in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, what if the two now Come together. What if the godly line of Seth intermarries with the wicked line of Cain? Now, I don't know if he was the first one to say this line, but I remember hearing it and loving it and thinking, I'm never going to forget this. It was Chuck Swindoll uh, who once said words to this effect. He said, you know, and I, I wish I could do his voice. I'm sure a lot of people wish they could do his voice. Uh, he said, you know, uh, if you have a, a white glove and you drop that white glove into the, the mud, he says, does the mud get all glovey? Or does the glove get all muddy. When you take, uh, if you will, to, to use a different metaphor, if you take the black hats of the line of Cain and the white hats of the line of Seth and you bring them together, you're not going to get white hats. With respect to the Swindoll analogy, you're not going to get gray hats. You're going to get black hats. And that's precisely what happened. The children of Israel, excuse me, the, the children of Seth intermarried with the line of Cain. Now, I think that's exactly what happened, but I think it's also important for us to think about this in the context in which this true story is first being told. 
This, remember, is Moses speaking to the children of Israel as they're on their way to the promised land. You've got to understand that the book of Genesis is being communicated during the events in the book of Exodus. So Moses is communicating the, the backstory, if you will, of God's people to God's people as they're on their way to their future. And when they get there, what is God going to have them do? God's going to tell them, when you cross over the Jordan River, when you go into the land that I'm going to give you, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, when you get there and you go to war, I don't want you taking any prisoners. Kill every last one of their soldiers. And when you're done with that, I want you to kill every last one of their women. I want you to kill every last one of their children. Kill their old men. I want you to kill their cows. I want you to kill their pigs. I want you to kill their sheep. I want you to kill their goldfish and their gerbils. If it moves, I want you to kill it. The harim, that's the, the Hebrew word, the, the ban, this, this declaration from God that God's people should kill all of these people, uh, is uh, not surprisingly difficult for those outside the kingdom to swallow. They get uncomfortable uh, with that command. But there's a reason for that. A reminder, by the way, that helps us deal with that is to remember that all of us are under God's judgment. Just, and just as we're going to see with respect to the flood. But part of the reason was not only that God had been waiting to judge these people, but also that they would not be a snare and a temptation to God's people. That they wouldn't be the beautiful wives of the daughters of men to the sons of God. So when Moses is telling this story, this true story, of what happened in the days of Noah, or leading up to the days of Noah, he is warning God's people, hey, you need to stay away from the world. You can't, if you want to put it in New Testament terms, you can't serve two masters. You've got to be set apart and distinct from these folks. And by the way, when you look at the history of the children of Israel, of course, they don't wipe out all the inhabitants of the Promised Land. The whole book of Judges, as we uh, can see, the whole book of Judges is the story of the fruit of the failure of God's people to follow God's law in wiping these folks out. Because the very people who are oppressing the children of Israel in the book of Judges are the people that were supposed to be killed in the book of Joshua. You've got that problem. But moving even further forward, where is the multiplication of wives coming from? Where, as you read through the chronicles of the kings, when you see the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah falling into idolatry nine times out of ten, it's because of their foreign wives. They, like kings often do, start marrying on the basis of... Uh, political alliances, and they bring into their families idolaters. And being husbands, wanting to honor and please their wives, they end up, even Solomon, who built the temple of God, built temples so that his many, many wives from other countries could worship the way they wanted to worship. 
the same problem. Which, applying the R.C. Sproul Jr. principle of hermeneutics, ought to tell us something. That we, too, are prone to loving that which is attractive, that which is appealing to the eye. Isn't it interesting that, that the sons of God find the daughters of men beautiful? It reminds me of the language of Adam and Eve, specifically Eve, when she looked at the fruit and she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. It was appealing to her eyes. Well, this is the same thing. And this is the same thing we struggle with as well. It was Francis Schaeffer who said that the God of our age is not Moloch, it's not Baal, uh, it's not Ashtoreth. The God of our age is the God of personal peace and affluence. And just as the children of Israel, and just as those people here in Genesis chapter 6, tried to worship both, so we seek to worship the Lord, but also worship the God of personal peace and affluence. In fact, such seems perfectly normal to us. Understand, of course, I'm not against peace, I'm not against affluence, either one of those things. Those can be gifts of God, but they become idols when they become the thing that we desire more than anything else, when we marry ourselves to them, when we cling to them, when we're one with them, just like we are with our own spouse. Well, things got bad. If you were with us when we went through Genesis chapter 5, you may remember uh, my curiosity about the lives of those patriarchs that lived hundreds and hundreds of years. And one of the things I think I mentioned is that there are a lot of folks who wonder, with respect to the uh, idea that they may have been much more technologically advanced than we might imagine, Part of the argument for that is that they lived so long. They could learn so much. We only have so many hours in our day, so many days in our year, so many years in our lives, and we can't keep learning. But these guys learn for hundreds and hundreds of years, and maybe they just learn more than we can imagine. And that, that sort of seems like a positive thing about lives that long. But it also means that they had hundreds and hundreds of years to grow in becoming increasingly wicked. I've described it this way before, that when man fell, man was made to be a mirror, to reflect the character of God. And when man fell into sin, that mirror cracked. And when you have a cracked mirror, you really have two things, don't you? You have mirror, pieces of mirror, parts of mirror, and you have cracks. That's what we are. Well, when we are reborn, when we have our heart of stone taken from us and we're given a heart of flesh, when we embrace the work of Christ, when we're indwelt by his Spirit, God does the work of sanctification, of purifying us. Jesus washes us. And what he does in doing that is he takes those cracks and makes them more and more mirror. But when we're outside the kingdom, we become worse and worse. 
And so instead of having the cracks becoming mirror, we have the shards, the remains of the mirror, becoming more and more cracks. What happens when you take a mirror and you break it and break it and break it and break the small pieces into smaller pieces and the smaller pieces into smaller still pieces, eventually, you know what you get down to? Sand. You get down to sand. And that's where the seed of the serpent, that's where the daughters of men were headed. And when the sons of God chased after them, they followed in the same direction. And thus God comes and he speaks to Noah. And he says to Noah that he needs to build an ark. I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And he gives all the instructions and the measurements. And then he says this in verse 18 of chapter 6, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and have every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and the animals according to their kinds and every creeping thing upon the ground according to its kind. What's God doing? <laughs> you could say that God is tearing asunder what man has brought together. He is separating out for himself, calling out for himself from the world, from the darkness, into the light. Those that he has chosen, those that he's making covenant with. Which, by the way, he's going to do again in the coming chapters in Genesis. It is what God does. In fact, friends, one of the two words that we translate in our English Bibles into the word church, from the original Greek, one of those two words is the word ecclesia, from which we get the word ecclesiology or ecclesiastical. The ecclesia, then, when you break that down a little further, literally means the called out ones. That's what we are. We have been called out of the darkness into his marvelous light. We've been called out of the world into the kingdom of God. We've been called to be set apart, distinct, holy. And we've been made and are being made into a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own peculiar people. Again, friends, that's what God does. When we get to Genesis chapter 7, we're going to see more about the flood and more about that process. But we're going to see it in light of what God is doing, calling out a people for himself.